Well, good morning, Doxa. My name is Ronnie, one of the pastors here, and I actually get to lead our college ministry, The Salt Company. Excited to get to preach to you this morning. We're in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 4, finishing out chapter 4 this morning. So why don't you turn there? We're going to look at verses 8 through 21 this morning. And if you remember last week, Paul, he was, he was trying to correct the way that the Corinthians were viewing him. Okay, and isn't that one of the things that just haunts us the most, like our, our self-image, how we feel about ourselves, how other people feel about us, how they see us? You know, billions and billions of dollars are spent every year on image management in a billion different forms, right? And the Corinthians, they were people that were just deeply entrenched in this type of a culture, success, beauty, power, wisdom, status. But as Paul has been saying this whole time, these are all metrics that are foolish in God's eyes. Okay, so last week, Paul's basic message was this. It was, hey, don't look at me according to the world's story and in the culture and the success of the world. Look at me the way that God does in Christ. He literally said, you should regard me as a steward and a servant of the mysteries of God, the story of God, and assess me only on my faithfulness to that calling. She was like, honestly, guys, I'm not going to be viewed as a huge success in the eyes of the world. I won't get the applause of the world, and that's okay because I'm not actually performing for the world. Okay, in verse 5, he says, so don't pronounce your judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, when he brings to light the things that are now hidden in darkness, and he discloses the purposes of the heart. Then each will receive his commendation from God. Paul was a man who was not living into the world story but into God's story. Okay, he wasn't living for the world's applause. He was living for God's approval. And that mentality that he had, that decision that he made in his mind, it made him one of the most joyful, joyful and powerful people that the world has ever seen, even though he suffered more than most of us ever will. That was Paul. And so here's a question for us just right off the bat is what story are you living into? What role are you trying to play in that story? Whose approval and whose applause are you longing for? And even if you don't immediately like have an answer to that question, we can't help but do it. That's like the way that we know who we are. That's how we find our identity. We have to locate ourselves in some type of a story. We have to find some type of a role. We find ourselves by finding ourselves in stories and then trying to fit ourselves into them. Okay, and the beginning of this is obviously the classic school play that happens sometime in elementary, middle, or sometimes even high school if you sign up for it at that point, okay? So in my connection group this week, I did a little survey just to see what kind of talent we were working with and listen to, to some of the roles and played by people in my connection group, okay? We've got Wendy and Peter Pan. Not bad. Um, has anyone seen Les Mis? We've got, in my connection group, the wife of the priest with the candlesticks. Somebody played that role. Cheerleader from High School Musical. Uh, we have someone that was just a narrator, which seems like kind of a backseat role, but we all know how important of a role the narrator plays, and he couldn't even remember what he had narrated. He just always got shows to be the narrator, which is, that's pretty significant. We had somebody who played Jupiter. And now, before you, you scoff at that, I just want to let you know that Jupiter is the largest of all the planets. Okay, so in, a, in some sort of a play or maybe a middle school uh, musical in Plymouth, Michigan, where I might have grown up, there might have been some sort of a musical where we were all planets and they had to pick who's kind of like the best and the biggest person to play Jupiter and someone might have had to get picked for that. 
Before my days as Jupiter, I was also Johnny Appleseed. That was elementary school. Um, we had somebody in my connection group that played Charlie's mom in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And then probably the most respectable one, we had the classic Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus in the church play. So out of you guys in here, who, who are people that wanted to be like the leading role in the school play? Who are the people that auditioned for the leading role, wanted to be picked for the leading part? Anybody out there? Couple, a couple people willing to admit it. Who wanted to stay just out of the spotlight completely, didn't want any sort of a leading role? Okay. And who are the people that just didn't, didn't sign up to, to do that in high school? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you don't have to be into school plays to realize this, but we don't, we don't stop trying to find our role when we become adults. We just change the way that we do it. Okay. We start saying things like, you know, I'm going to move out West to try to figure out who I am. I need to go off to college to try to figure out my purpose. I'm frustrated with my job because it just doesn't feel like this is like the the thing I was put on earth to do. You know, and the recent push in recent years has been for us to create our own story, our own identity. And even that, though, guys, is a part of a story. It's a story that says you can create your own story, right? You can create your own role. You can create your own identity. And so, again, the question of what story are you living into? You know, you want to be a certain type of mom, a certain type of fun person, a certain type of student, a certain type of fit person, a certain type of conservative person, a certain type of progressive person. The roles that we could play are endless. And the problem with the Corinthian church wasn't that they were striving to find a role, it's that they were trying to find a role in the wrong story, the story of the world. And as Paul has been saying, the story of the world, the wisdom of the world, it is passing away. And so today, Paul, he's going to confront them and us with this hard reality. If you want to play a starring role in the story of the world, you shouldn't be a follower of Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 8. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8. He says, already you have all that you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you, you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and we thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Okay. So if we would have been in the room with Paul as he was saying this to them or as they read it, this confrontation, it would have made us cringe, right? The irony the sarcasm that he's using, he's using this drastic language to point out the drastic difference between their life and his. Okay, the story that they're living into and the story that he's living into. He says, they're boasting in their riches and their power and their beauty and their wisdom and their influence, right? They, they look to the world like a huge success. Like the Instagram feed for this church would have looked amazing to the eyes of the world. And Paul says, I've gotten the attention of the world too. I've become a spectacle to the world. But when they look at me, they think fool. They think loser. He says people revile me. They persecute me. They slander me. 
in verse 9, when he's talking about this, he actually is using a reference to the gladiator games of the day. Okay, so you picture these giant coliseum arenas. There'd be thousands of people that would come to the arena to see a performance, a fight to the death, and they'd be looking for these champions and these heroes. And he says, I'm kind of like that, but the world, it doesn't see me as one of these champion gladiators. It sees me as one of the defeated men sentenced to death. That's the role that I'm playing in the world story. And so he says, Corinthians, you're boasting in your earthly status. You're on top of the world, but when it looks at me, they view me as a fool, the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. And so the obvious question underneath it all is, in which one of us looks more like Jesus? Which one of our lives looks more like his? Which one of us is the apostle called by God to bear witness to his life and represent him? And the Corinthian Christians, they've gotten caught up in trying to be successful by the world's standards. They're trying to pursue a starring role in the world's story. And and by the way, what has the results of that pursuit been? We've been reading it in these first four chapters. It's basically been, you know, this beautiful, warm, loving culture of pride and conflict and insecurity and jealousy and fear and misery. Because any community that actually values and prioritizes cool over community kills community. To make it worse, he's actually already reminded them that that literally they weren't the popular kids in town anyway. He said in, in verse 26 of chapter one, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. But it is that prideful boasting that has been like the main thing he's been talking about in these four chapters. All this arguing, that's exactly what he's talking about. Okay, so here's the thing. The Corinthian church... Interestingly, it was about three years old at the time of writing this. They lived in an influential, powerful, cool, super hip city. The city was literally situated on an isthmus. Ring any bells. You know, so do you think this has any relevance for us today? And, and, And I know for me, just as an individual, I spent the first 18 years of my life before Jesus living into this script from the world. Okay, and 12 years later, I still very well in my bones know what it's like to wake up every day and really want the applause of the world. And so Paul's got my attention. Okay, but if I'm honest, I also recoil a little bit just because of how aggressive he's being and talking to me. I'm like, why are you yelling at me, Paul? Right? I just just opened up the Bible and it happened to be this page. I'm like, why are you yelling at me? But listen to what he says in verse 14. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, to warn you, as my beloved children. For though you uh, have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, and I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. Some are arrogant, as though I'm not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. 
For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So he says, I'm speaking to you strongly because I love you like my own children. Okay, just the other day, my, my two kids, Jackson and Hayes, they're in a fight over which color toothbrush they both want. And they've totally switched it around and they're just in this fight about it, this jealous argument, which toothbrush is better. And so I have to, I have to jump in and I have to discipline them. And I remember sitting there with my, my three and a half year old, Jackson, and I'm telling him, I'm like, I'm just trying to get through to him. I'm like, Jack, it, you know, it, it hurts me when you don't listen to me. And he's like, well, dad, it hurts me when you yell at me. <laughs> And it's, you know, and it hurts me when you say that. And, you know, so we're just going back and forth. And you know what you say, parents, right? I say, son, I, I'm not yelling at you, but I am raising my voice because you're not getting it. And I love you too much to let you grow up to be a selfish, spoiled brat. <laughs> and so Paul, he's, he's like walking into his house and seeing his kids fighting and he's trying to get their attention. Okay, he's trying to shock them out of their pride. He's raised his voice. He's emotional. He's pleading with them because he loves Jesus and he loves them and he wants what's best for them. So, so again, what is he saying? He's saying, church, Corinthians, Christians, you are gaining the approval of the world, but you are grieving the heart of God with your behavior, with your pride. Your life doesn't look like Jesus. Your arrogance and your pride and your boasting and your earthly status look nothing like Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this should sound familiar because he's basically been saying this for four chapters, right? But he gets to this point now where he's like, Corinthians, I, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Be imitators of my way. Stop living in the way of the world, the story of the world, and start living in my way. So what is, what is Paul's way? What is the way that he lives and that he says he's going to all these different churches and teaching them how to live? Well, it's the way of the cross. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus Christ and him crucified, the the crucified way. And so the truth for us this morning, guys, is that God, he gives each of us a role to play in his story, but with our role, he also gives us a cross to carry. If the story of Jesus is to be your life story, your life is going to start being shaped like his. If you're going to become like him, your life has to look like him. Okay, Christians carry crosses. This is what Jesus actually was always saying to his disciples. If you remember in the gospel story, he's always saying this to them and they don't want to understand him on it. Luke 9.23, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and what? Take up his cross daily and follow me. And the disciples, they resisted this because they wanted the kingdom and they wanted comfort and they wanted to be cool, but they didn't want the cross. But Jesus, he says, the kingdom, it actually only comes through the cross and your role will be just like mine in the story. It will be to carry the cross. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says of Jesus that he's the founder and he's the perfecter of of our faith. So we try to figure out the Christian life. We look to Jesus. He's the pace setter. He's the one that mapped it out for us. And what did he do? Well, it says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The cross 
and then the crown. That was the pattern of his life, and it is to be the pattern of ours. Okay, so this doesn't mean, though, that we all will live identical lives and play identical roles in the story of God. In John chapter 21, at the end of the Gospel of John, there's this moment where Jesus, two of his closest followers, Peter and John, are with him, and he's basically restoring Peter to ministry. He's telling him what his role is going to be. He says, you're going to feed my sheep. You're going to be a shepherd. And, and he tells them that they're both going to, to follow him. But then he essentially says, like, both of you are going to take up your cross and follow me. You're both going to suffer in some unique ways, but, but your cross is going to be different. And as he explains to Peter what his cross is going to be, he looks over at John and says, Jesus, what about him? And he says, don't worry about him. You follow me. And what church history will tell us is that Peter, his, his cross ended up literally culminating in a, a literal cross where he actually was crucified on, whereas John the Apostle, his cross to carry was exile on this island called Patmos where he actually wrote the book of, of Revelation. They both followed Jesus, they both carried the cross, but their cross was, was different. Okay, and this has been true of all Christians throughout history. Every Christian that's ever lived has played a unique role in God's story. They've carried a cross, but all their crosses were different. So all of us, we must deny ourselves. We must suffer, but it won't always be in the exact same way or in the exact same time, but it will always be in resistance to the world and to the ways of the world and the wisdom of the world. You cannot play a starring role in the world and carry your cross. This is the problem that he's, he's warning the Corinthians about. They're trying to follow Jesus without carrying the cross. Okay, it's like they've, they've turned the cross of Christ into something that saved them, but then doesn't really change them. They've taken the cross and they've kind of reshaped it into their image, their comfortable and cool image, when it actually should be the other way around. And so, what about us? What about you? You know, personally, uniquely to you, what is, what is your cross to bear in this season? Are you paying attention to it? Is it at all like obstructing your view, changing the way that you see things, changing your vision that you're, you're carrying this cross through life? Are you taking it up daily? Do you feel the weight of it on your back? Is it changing you? There's a, an old hymn, famous hymn, that it says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And I've always thought of that as just a, a great picture of how salvation works at the beginning, right? Where we, we don't come to God in our perfection, we come to him with our sin. We, we bring literally nothing to the table but our sin and the empty hands of faith. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling, and, and listen to me, that is how you become a Christian. That is how you become a Christian. You don't change your life first. You come to the cross empty-handed. You receive the forgiveness of your sins. This is not something you earn, it's something you receive. I always thought of it, though, as only that, just, just the beginning of the story, when really, as we're seeing nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, this is actually a picture of the whole journey Jesus says, take up my cross and, and follow me. To be a Christian is to be one that clings to the cross, carries it with us everywhere. That's our role in the story. And until our role 
in this part of the story is complete and we take up the crown in the next part of the story of the new heavens and the new earth. And so for the rest of our time this morning, I just want to ponder that together. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. What is it? What does it mean for us to actually pick up our cross and carry it with us everywhere? We've got three things. Number one, it means we choose humility and we risk being humiliated. The chief sin that Paul has been exposing in the Corinthian church so far in 1 Corinthians is pride. Right? It's been their pride. They've been boasting in their gifts. They've been boasting in their abilities. They've been bragging about their favorite leaders. They've been getting in fights and dividing over it. And that's what pride does every time. It turns everything into a competition and ultimately destroys. And so that's why actually some of like the top like business leadership gurus of our day, people like Jim Collins, people like Patrick Lencioni, if you've read any of their books, they actually they, they like do all these studies and they identify that, like, hey, the X factor to great leaders and great team members, not in a Christian context at all, but great leaders, great team members, is humility. That's the X factor. And so over and over again, Paul, he's been saying, don't boast in men. Don't boast in men and your pride. Instead, boast in the Lord. Put your confidence in God alone and identify in God alone. In verse 19 and 20, this is like at the end of his thought, he's just like, I have had enough of the talk of these arrogant people. I want to see the power of humility. I want to see someone who's walking in real power because the kingdom of God, it doesn't consist in talk, but in power. And what is power to Paul? Do you remember back in in chapter two, earlier in this same argument, he said, for I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, humility. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So we pick up our cross every day and we choose, like deliberately choose humility. The cross teaches us to do that. In just like the little moments that nobody ever sees and the big decisions that everybody sees. And in my connection group a couple weeks ago, we were talking about this. Like, how do we do this? And we kind of boiled it down to, you know, humility, it, it means that we aren't above serving anyone. Because Jesus wasn't. We look to the cross, we go through life, we look at the cross, we go, oh yeah, I'm not above, I'm not above being a servant because he wasn't. But then interestingly, humility also means we aren't above being served. We're not above needing people. To serve us. That too is pride, you know, when you think that you don't need anyone. Because we look at the cross, we look at Jesus, we actually remember that the night before he was, or the night he was betrayed, he asked his disciples to stay up and pray with him. He says, I need help. I'm weak. This man named Simon of Cyrene, he actually helped Jesus carry his cross up the mountain to Golgotha. And so we carry our cross, and when someone serves us, we look at our cross, we look back at them, and instead of saying, oh, don't mention it, or no problem, or I I don't even need that, we say, thank you. That's humility. And the more conscious you are of the cross that you're carrying, the more ready you will be to choose humility in all of these little moments, and the more truly powerful your life will be. Because that's what the cross does, it 
it humbles us, but sometimes it actually goes even further and it humiliates us. Look at verse 10. Paul says to them, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. And so here's the irony. Jesus was actually the most brilliant, wise, and worthy of honor human being that has ever lived. And Paul wasn't Jesus, but he was like that as well. But in the wisdom of the world and in its pride, they saw them as foolish, weak, and shameful. And so both Jesus on the cross and Paul, as he's ministering to people in Corinth in ragged clothes, they're actually exhibiting unbelievable love and strength, and they are ridiculed for it. Crucifixion itself, it was designed to be a shameful spectacle. And now Paul is saying, I'm like a spectacle to the world, this shameful spectacle. That's my life. And so Jesus and Paul, they would look right at us holding their crosses and say, we have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. They weren't just humble. They were humiliated. They were mocked and they were shamed by the world, their act of love was completely misunderstood as the opposite. But here's the key. For them, loving us was worth the risk of being humiliated and misunderstood. And so when we think about carrying the cross, the, the role that we are called to play, Christians, Doxa Church, in the story is not to promote ourselves, but to actually humbly carry the cross as servants, ready to risk even humiliation for love's sake. There's an old theologian named B.B. Warfield who wrote a famous essay called Imitating the Incarnation, Patterning Your Life After Jesus. Listen to what he says about our role in the world. Says Jesus, he was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself in the needs of others, to sacrifice self once and for all upon the altar of sympathy. Self sacrifice brought Christ into the world, and self sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there we will be to comfort. Wherever men fail, there we will be to uplift. Wherever men strive, there we will be to help. Wherever men succeed, there we will be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice, humility, means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means not to live just only one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls in loving sympathy. And this is not me right now. I read, I read that paragraph, I, I hear, I listen to this sermon as I'm saying it, and, and guys, my, my vision and my ambition for life is still so selfish, so entangled in like the story of the American dream that I grew up with. I still want to be cool. I still want to be comfortable more than I truly want to follow Christ wherever he would take me. But I read that and I hear this and I, the thing I feel and all I can kind of muster up at this point on Sunday morning is this is who I must be. This is who I must become. I must take up my cross for the glory of God and for the sake of the world. And so that's the second thing that it, it means to carry our cross is we endure and even embrace suffering as a consequence of following Christ. Okay, we endure and even embrace suffering as a consequence 
of following Christ. Paul, he, he suffered physically and emotionally, and, and it wasn't because he necessarily like sought it out, but it was a byproduct. It was a consequence of the fact that he was following Jesus, right? He talks about how at this point he's homeless and he's hungry and thirsty, and he's not saying because that's necessarily how Christians are supposed to be, but that's what it cost him for his calling, for his role in the story to follow Jesus, to get the gospel planted in Corinth. That was his cross to carry. And suffering, it's a reality for all people that everybody experiences and everybody has to deal with and everyone has to have an answer for how they're going to endure suffering in this life. Everyone, Christian or not. But Paul, he found a way to not only endure suffering, but to embrace it. Look at verse 11. He says, To this present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. And then when we, revi- when we are reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We offer a, a gentle, humble answer when people shamefully scorn us. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And so as Paul, as he wrote this to them, he wrote it with scars on his body, hunger, in his belly, wounds in his soul for the things that people had said to him, things that people had done to him, but you know what he didn't write it with? Any self-pity. In fact, a couple of verses later, did you catch what he said? He literally says, and I urge you to imitate me. He's like, my life is horrible by the world's standards and I think you should join me. I think you should join me in that, Corinthians. What kind of person responds with blessing when they are persecuted and reviled? What kind of person can endure the persecution that Paul endured? What kind of person responds with gentleness and respect when they are mocked and shamed? A person who has learned to not only endure suffering, but embrace it. And what kind of person can do that? Only a person who's learned to embrace the cross. But not just the pain of the cross. We don't just embrace pain for pain's sake. The man on the cross. The joy of knowing him and being known by him. The joy of becoming like him and actually sharing in his suffering. The joy of anticipating the crown that we will wear after we have carried our cross through this life. After we've played our role faithfully and we go to see him face to face. And that's number three. We carry our cross and we look to the greater reward. This is what it means to carry our cross. When Jesus says, pick it up and follow me, he says, and look for the greater reward. Because Jesus, he didn't say, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and be miserable. He said, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and find your life in me. Jesus didn't say, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and be comfortable. He said, deny yourself. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so hear me clearly. I'm not saying that suffering isn't miserable and that the cross isn't heavy and horrible, but I imagine if we would have been with Paul, if we would have seen him, and if we would have looked into his eyes we would have noticed that 
his eyes didn't really match what the rest of his body was saying. You know, his body, it would have looked tattered and worn, hanging on by a thread in weakness. The weakness in his voice would have been palpable. He would have looked like a defeated man, sentenced to death. A man left for dead in the garbage heap of the world, a spectacle of suffering and shame, a fool. But if you looked at his eyes, I think you would have seen a man so full of joy and vitality and life that he would have looked kind of insane, almost delusional. If you would have looked into Paul's eyes, you would have seen like, he doesn't even look like he's living on the same planet as you. He doesn't look like he's looking at the same reality as you. Like in his brain, he's not doing the math equation right of how he should be feeling based on his circumstances. If you would have looked into his eyes, you would have seen a fool for Christ's sake. And in Philippians chapter 3, he tells us what he was seeing. Paul, he tells us that as I carried my cross, this is what I was always looking at. This is what pulled me forward. This is how I endured such horrible suffering and blessed the people that were doing it to me. This is what he saw. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, all the things that the Corinthians are boasting about, all the things that we brag about, worldly status, whatever it is, whatever gain I had, I counted it as a loss. Why? For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and even share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He was looking to the greater reward. And so Jesus, he, he gives us a cross to carry so that we would learn in life that knowing him is greater than anything else we could ever have in this world. And the Corinthians' problem wasn't their desire for glory and honor and riches in a kingdom. It's that they thought they had it already. They thought they had it in this life. They thought they had achieved it. That's why Paul at the beginning, he says, already you have all that you want? Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings. No, there is no greater loss you could suffer in this life than to already have all you want in this life and nothing in the next. To be kings in the eyes of the world, but to be unknown to the king of kings, to God, what Paul is saying is there is no greater life than you could have than to know him even if by all means possible, any means possible, you have to share in his suffering, become like him in his death so that one day you can join him and be resurrected and united in him. And so, so here's what this means, this, this any means possible attitude that Paul had. It means that Jesus, he, he gives us a cross. He says, carry this and be a fool for my sake a humble, joyful, loving, suffering, totally misunderstood fool. And after you play your role faithfully in this life, whatever that is for you, you can put that cross down and I will crown you with the glory 
that will not be able to be compared to the sufferings that you suffered in this life for my name. So let's pick up our cross and follow Jesus. Father, we, we have been sitting in these chapters for weeks. And God, we feel invited into a different kind of life with you. God, but it is so hard to, to pick up our cross. It is, it is so hard to keep our focus on that. It is, it is painful. And Lord, so we ask that you'd be with us. Lord, we humbly confess our, our need that, God, we need you because we're sinful and we don't want to do it. We need you because we're, we're weak and we can't carry it. Jesus, we need your joy to be our strength as we carry the cross. God, give us vision to see the the greater reward. God, give us courage to be servants of love in the world. God, help us. Jesus, we say with as much belief as we can muster that we believe in you and we want to follow you and we want to follow you on your terms, but God, help us. We need your help. Make Doxa a beautiful church for your glory in this city and to the ends of the earth. Amen.